Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, statement's coming at ya, statement's coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to Creating a Family either at iTunes or you can subscribe at the radio page of our site or any podcast directory you utilize to listen to this show. Today's show is going to be on practical considerations when going abroad for fertility treatment. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Fearing Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including information on in general information on infertility, treatment options, ways to save money, and things like that, you can go to the new, it's not so new anymore, it's probably about a year old, fairingfertility.com website. If you have enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please do us a favor and rate this podcast on iTunes. If you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just type in the words creating a family and then rate it. And if you're feeling particularly generous, we would appreciate a comment. It really does help people find the show. It is uh, iTunes is the primary way that people who don't know about us find us, and they rely upon comments and ratings for uh, how, they, um, how they rate. We are the number one podcast uh, in the areas of both infertility and adoption, and we'd like to stay there. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility adoption, or adoption, and I do it three times a week. One you might enjoy is a recent blog I did on infertility grief, saying goodbye to the child you never had. Uh, it is, uh, I'm speaking on that topic uh, next week at, uh, the, uh, at a conference in Toronto, so I have been thinking about it a whole lot. And uh, Anyway, I uh, recommend that blog. You can get to it at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They were the pioneers of the first embryo donation program called Snowflakes. They have had well over 260 babies born to date uh, through the Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. On today's Creating a Family show, we'll be talking about practical considerations when going abroad for treatment. That is, whether you are a U.S. citizen going outside the United States for treatment or a foreign citizen coming to the United States. Our guests are Catherine Kakoff-Manos. She is the co-founder for the Agency for Surrogacy Solutions and Global IVF, which is an informational website to help intended parents from all over the world. She is a mom herself through surrogacy and egg donation. 
We also have Sue Taylor. She is an IVF consultant with over 27 years' experience in the healthcare industry, assisting patients with selecting IVF clinics or with the practicalities of traveling to another country for fertility treatment. She blogs at IVFTraveler.com. Welcome, Sue and Catherine, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Thank you for having me and us. Thanks for having us. Yes. All right, Sue, I'm going to direct the first question towards you. Uh, when U.S. citizens, are, and, I, and as I've mentioned on the show, we're going to talk about both U.S. citizens going abroad for treatment and then, I guess, the reverse, so to speak, when you have foreign citizens or citizens of other countries coming to the United States for treatment. Kind of, And we're going to start with talking about uh, when U.S. citizens go abroad. So when you see U.S. citizens going abroad for fertility treatment, what is the most common treatment there? Why are they going abroad? What is the treatment? they're seeking abroad? I think in in my business, the most common um, thing that they're going abroad for is for a fresh donor egg uh, treatment cycle. And the you know, the biggest reason a U.S. citizen would go abroad for that is the tremendous cost savings of doing it in another country. Okay, so, they, so for donor egg, um, and, and Catherine, how common is surrogacy abroad? Because I also know that, as Sue mentioned, cost is our primary well, usually the primary reason for going abroad. So what about surrogacy? Is that another reason people often go abroad or or not so much? It's a huge reason. The costs here in the United States can uh, go well over a hundred thousand um, dollars. And when you're looking to travel abroad, you can you're looking at more as low as thirty or forty thousand dollars, and even with an egg donor, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. So you can be saving uh, at least fifty percent. But you have to be careful which countries you're going to. There are some countries that offer it, but have no real laws in place. And there are other countries where there are laws or precedent, but there's all kinds of little intricacies that you have to be aware of before you leave. Um, For instance, in India, the cost savings are at least 50%. Even if you, and if you want a Caucasian donor or an Indian donor, that can vary in the price. When the baby is born, one of the uh, one of the biological parents needs to be a U.S. citizen because they are going to do a DNA test. So, if you're planning on using an egg donor and a sperm donor, you really don't have the option to go to India. In fact, if you're using an egg donor and a sperm donor, and you want your name on the birth certificate, the United States, as far as I understand, and Canada are the only two countries that you should even be considering. And then you're looking at high costs. So, there are pluses of going. Going just a second, we will get to that. Uh, okay. the, the immigration issues are huge. We're actually not. I'm going to recommend, let me just go ahead and do it now. Uh, I cannot stress enough that especially with third party, when you're using donor egg, donor sperm, or surrogacy, uh, you really have to very carefully analyze the uh, uh, immigration issues. I'm actually, I, I'm not personally speaking. I'm going to a conference, and uh, uh, I'm speaking at the conference, but uh, I'm not going to be handling the immigration issues in November that is dealing with this. We did a, a really a terrific Creating a Family show a year or so ago uh, with two top um, uh, uh, both reproductive lawyers as well as immigration lawyers. Both of them were both immigration and reproductive law attorneys. And uh, I I cannot recommend it enough. You would find that on our fertility tourism page at our site. Uh, You would go to creatingafamily.org, hover over the word infertility, click on resources, go to fertility tourism, uh, and you can access that site. I mean, that show is called Legal Implications for Going Abroad for Treatment. I, I truly can't recommend it enough. So let me just 
put that in there, put that out there right now, because truly the immigration issues are so confusing <laughs> and so complex that they really are somewhat above. Although Catherine, you nailed it, nailed it on the head. You, it, it's a, just a morass of confusion, and you need yeah, to be very careful <laughs> where you're also, going. And they also change frequently. So if you see something posted on a website. That's not good enough. As you said, you have people that specialize in this area. Those you, Before you go anywhere, you should check what the most current laws and restrictions are. Excellent. Uh, before we leave, I want to go back to something Sue said. Okay, the, uh, Sue, the most common reason is a fresh a donor egg cycle. And the, the most common reason, you say, is cost. What Roughly, what is the uh, cost savings uh, for going abroad? Sure. So typically speaking in the U.S., we see somewhere, um, cycles between somewhere between about 25000 and 45000 for a donor egg cycle. And then when we're looking at uh, going abroad, we're seeing costs more along the lines of somewhere to between six and 15000 for a donor egg cycle, including the donor fees, donor medications, sort of everything except your travel and preparation in advance. And tell me that number again, roughly. Uh, abroad is somewhere between 6000 and about 15000 depending on the country and the clinic. We have a question from Lou, and she's, uh, I'm going to paraphrase it. Uh, she is interested in a uh, Caucasian donor, and specifically she, she wants the donor to, to resemble her. Uh, so she's got the eye color that she's hoping for and hair color. Um, so the, the issue comes when going abroad. Where are the egg donors coming from. Uh, for instance, if you're going to India, are they of Indian nationality, which would make sense, of course. Uh, so do you need to select a country for an egg donor based on what you want the uh, the physical uh, resemblances to the physical characteristics of the donor to be? And so I'll direct that one to you as well. Sure. I think the majority of the time, it certainly helps to think about what the typical population is in that country. Some countries are um, a little bit have a little bit more international um, uh, people that live there, and so their ability to get uh, a various you know various types of donors is a little bit easier. And then the other way, which tends to be a little bit more expensive, would be to take a donor from another country to the country of treatment, um, and that's happening. So, for example, you mentioned in India, so that's happening where sometimes um, they'll take a South African donor to India if they're, if they're not able to find a donor with the characteristics that they're looking for in the country where they want to have treatment. And the, the only, this is Catherine, the only real reason to go to India and bring a donor is if you're also doing surrogacy because you're adding additional costs. Um, you would be much better, as Sue said, you know, if you need a, if you have a certain look, you can go directly to South Africa to do your egg donation there or to uh, Ukraine or Czech Republic. Uh, and there are countries such as South Africa where you might have greater diversity in the look of the donor that you get. Um, but you can in other countries too. What are, uh, Catherine, what are the more common countries that people go to for egg donation? Speaking just now, we're not surrogacy yet. We're going to come to surrogacy. Right. Uh, well, South Africa, Czech Republic, Ukraine, Cyprus, Greece, oh, Spain is very big. Um, I know a few of Panama. Sue, did I leave some out? <laughs> Mexico, Barbados. Um, I, I, think you got, yeah, I think you hit the, the most popular ones. 
So for Caucasian uh, 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 couples or a uh, woman who wants a Caucasian, maybe rephrasing it, somebody who wants a Caucasian donor, um, she would be cho- choosing, uh, say, a, uh, if in, in specific, she wants a, a brown-haired, you know, blue-eyed or brown hair, brown-eyed or whatever. Uh, they, South Africa, Czech Republic, Ukraine would primarily be her choices, maybe Spain. Yes, Spain also, because in, say, Barcelona or in the eastern coast, you have a strong European influence. So from from the northern part of Spain, you know, northern part of uh, Europe. So you sometimes people have assumptions that they're going to get a certain look because Spain, you think more dark hair, dark eyed, but that's not always an, um, the right assumption. So doing research is very important, not just going on what you think you're going to find. You should actually check into it, contact people that have done it before, talk to the clinic, um, and don't only rely on what you read on the Internet. Talking to real people is very beneficial. All right, since this show is is on practical considerations, so what would be some of the practical considerations that someone who is thinking about finding an egg donor abroad, what should be what should they be thinking about? For instance, what would come to mind is how much from a practical standpoint, how much information and how reliable the information is going to be on the donor. Um so what are some what are some things that people need to think through um before they choose a country? I think that that you you sort of hit the nail on the head. It's an, it's very important that they understand what information they can ask for and what information they're going to receive about the donor. Um, and I think probably the biggest first question that I usually ask is how flexible they are about using an anonymous donor versus someone who might be open ID, where the child might be able to get access. Um, to the donor's information uh, when they're when they're older, um, it's it's much much more difficult to find um, open ID donors because most of the countries that are very popular for egg donation um, have mandated laws for uh, that the donors be anonymous. So that makes it um, you know important prior to choosing the country. You need to understand the laws of the country and how it impacts um, both egg and sperm donation. And also, um, one thing that sometimes gets missed uh, in this whole uh, consideration is what happens if you have embryos, uh, remaining embryos, when you're done with your fresh treatment and um, or when you're done with your family building, are you able to donate them and what are the options with that as well? So I think sometimes people forget to think about what happens later. Um, so no, those are I two considerations I that I talk yeah. to people about a lot. That is, and, and I want to come back to that because I think that is something that very few people think about. In fact, uh, very few, uh, and uh, are often surprised or and or frustrated. Um, all right, but before we come to the remaining embryos issue, uh, uh, Catherine, are there other uh, again kind of falling under the general category of practical considerations that somebody should think about when choosing a country? Absolutely. Uh, it's not apples to apples. You're saving money, and as we discussed earlier, that's the main motivation to go abroad. But you often, there are very few countries where you are allowed to see profiles, uh, even if it's going to be anonymous. Sometimes people want to see pictures. In the United States, they get very thorough, detailed profiles. In most countries, you don't get that. The clinic is making a selection. They often are trying to give you the things you want you know, how they look, what their education level is, but you're relying on them to 
find the right person for you. The other thing is there are often hidden fees, and it's not that the clinics are trying to hide it from you. They're just not taking it into consideration. As Sue said, your travel, that your food, you may have lost wages. You may also have to stop, start your monitoring in your home city if you're trying to shorten the length of stay that you're going to be in the other country doing your egg donation, so you're going to have monitoring fees. Not to, And again, your savings are still going to be substantial, but you should go in well informed of what your costs are going to be so you're not going to feel surprised later on. Success rates are another thing that vary in other countries. We have very high success rates here in the United States, and I don't see most countries quite as high. Also, their reporting, how they report their success rates. We're monitored here by the government. Our clinics report to the government. That's not true in every other country. I think the clinics are generally honest um, and being forthright, but not every clinic. They may be elevating their statistics. They also only transfer two embryos, which is, I think, a good thing. We don't want high-order multiples, but if your egg quality, embryo quality is poor, they can still only transfer two embryos by law in in many of the countries that are offering it. So, again, it's not they're not even it's not even negative it's just it's not apples to apples you're not going to get everything you get here in the united states for less money abroad there are give and takes and for many people the the financial savings are so substantial that it's worth it they want a child don can i can i add a couple other things to that uh, list as yes, well please so i think um a couple things that i talk to people about as well are what technologies um, they think they're going to need for their treatment. So not all technologies are available in all countries. For example, gender selection is not available in certain countries. Um, Certain clinics um, are offering um, CCS or genetic testing of embryos, but that's not available everywhere. Um, So in some cases, um, there might be technologies that might lead um, somebody towards deciding which clinic that they're going to go to that might not be available, you know, at all clinics in all countries. And the other factor that that I – I'm sorry? Meaning things like PGD, ICSI, uh, intercytoplasmic sperm injection, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, What other technologies do people need to think through the availability of? Yeah. A popular one right now is the time-lapse video monitoring. Um, That's, you know, pretty popular right now. It's available at a lot of clinics, but not available everywhere. And that's a, a way for without um, actually doing any biopsies on the embryos, a way for them to improve their chances of picking an embryo that's likely to be a competent embryo. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of a popular technology right now as well, PICSI you know, and MC. I was just going to say the the technology the, uh, that Sue was talking about, often sometimes we feel the United States is more advanced than every other country, but this technology, the embryoscope, was being used in Czech Republic and was sampled there before it was used in other countries. So you don't sometimes you get even more advanced things when you travel abroad. Absolutely right, so you're saying don't, don't, don't make the assumption necessarily, but think through what it is that you think you're going to need or what you want. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and uh, to make sure. All right, I wanted to come back to two things that um, actually both of you were, were talking about. So you raised the issue of remaining embryos. Um, we have uh, seen, we've heard from um, uh, a number of people, and they're creating a family community, 
who were surprised by uh, they had they went abroad. Uh, I think the cases I'm remembering were egg donation. One was egg donation and surrogacy, but one, but, but egg donation, and they uh, had frozen embryos left over and eventually wanted to get the embryos back to the United States, one person, and one person was wanting to dispose of the embryos. So let's talk, and, and they were running into, they were quite surprised by running into trouble about this. So let's talk a little about from uh, what are the options for remaining embryos uh, and, and how much control a patient has. Catherine, I'll start with you on this one. Well, again, the, the biggest issue is you now, let's say you don't get pregnant the first try. You don't have the resources to travel back to the country where your embryos are frozen, it can be very difficult getting your embryos back here. And some, there's a lot of loopholes and red tape to go through, and there's a lot of cost involved, so you have to think of that. Or the same thing, you had a child, and now your embryos are there, and you want to try again. And so there's an additional cost there. They can be shipped back. It depends which country they're coming from. It depends. The laws change the, for importing um, biological material. It can, it can be a logistical headache. Some clinics won't accept it. Some countries won't accept those embryos. So we work a lot trying to help people with that, and it can be a logistical nightmare. Okay, so it's something to think about. And who controls the uh, embryos? Let's say you don't want to uh, try again. You've you completed your family. Who controls the remaining embryos? In the United States, it is the uh, parents or the, the people who created them. Um, Sue, in other countries, who who controls what happens to embryos? In most countries, it's similar that the intended parents still um, are controlling what happens to the embryos. But just like here in the United States, not all clinics offer all options. And when we're dealing with countries that have um, anonymous donor, uh, you know, legalities related to the donors being anonymous, it may limit your ability to donate those embryos to someone that you know or in some cases, it may lim- limit your ability to donate them, period, unless you go back and, um, you know, if you're using your partner's sperm, your partner may-, may need to go back and do some additional testing so that they would be qualified to be a donor before they could the, the embryos could be donated. Is it a concern that uh, your embryos could be donated without your permission? Is that a concern with some countries, Catherine? Yes, the, the, we... It shouldn't be, but there we hear of instances where the child does not end up being biologically theirs. In general, you find this out, as I spoke earlier, when there's DNA testing done um, on the child that's born in order to come back to the United States or their home country, and they do the testing and they find out there's no biological connection. So we know that there are instances of it. But that said, We've heard about that sometimes in the United States, too. So it is a risk that you take. But I think that the clinics, and the ones especially that are dealing with international clients, they really are trying to take a lot of extra precautions. They want the business. They want to keep people coming. They want to have a good reputation. So work with a clinic that's been around that has a good reputation, and the odds of something like that happening are very small. John, I, I think that what, uh, this is Sue. I think that what you were uh, maybe referring to was um, a couple years ago there were some Spanish clinics that once the embryos were abandoned, so the intended parents stopped mm-hmm. paying for storage, stopped exactly. responding 
um, those embryos actually ended up being abandoned. And then um, the Spanish clinics were actually were actually deciding to basically take ownership and transfer them um, as donated embryos. And there was a pretty big backlash, particularly in the UK, related to that. I'm not certain that there's any clinics currently doing that, but there certainly is a big concern in the community as to what they should do with abandoned embryos. In some countries, they, you know, they're not allowed to destroy the embryos, um, and so it. So we have this, you know, uh, these abandoned embryos that n nobody really knows what to do with. And so I think that that's that might be what you were referring to, um, although I I really don't see it happening. Um, anytime recently, I haven't seen um, that scenario happening because there was such a big backlash when they did it. Okay. Now I want to ask, talk about success rates, and I was glad that Catherine brought it up because we are spoiled in the United States because we um, the clinics are, if they're members of the Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, SART or ASRM, uh, they're required to report, and there's a standard uh, form for reporting, the standard uh, criteria for what is reported. And I think people going abroad assume that that information is also available abroad. Catherine, what information? Okay, how can patients find a clinic with a high success rate? And and by success rate, what is the criteria they should be specifically asking about? You know, as you said, there's no standardization. So you are going on people's word. Um, I, as I said, I would look at clinics that have been around longer. There are some, such as in India, there's a couple of clinics that have European-based, um, they're headed by um, a European clinic, like Born Hall in India, also Evie, which is out of Spain, and Born Hall's out of England. They are very strict on their reporting. So you can trust that, but sometimes you aren't going to those places either. Um, so there always is a bit of a gamble. I do think that they elevate their statistics. What I do suggest is the most important thing probably with the statistics is to see not so much the live birth rate, but the implantation rate, because you cannot always tell what's happening. The there may be other issues. There may be issues with the embryos. There may be issues with the lining. So you look at that. But it is, there is definitely a leap of faith. And if somebody's reporting 45%, that's probably true. If they're reporting 65 to and above success rate, you might take it with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, it is very difficult. I, I really don't know how to tell people except, again, to look to people that have gone abroad, to look at websites, to see what people are saying, and to move forward in that way. Uh, just to piggyback on that, I think that it's important that people are comparing apples to apples. And I want to note that some clinics are reporting positive pregnancy results, and some clinics are reporting clinical pregnancies defined as, um, you know, being able to see a fetal heartbeat. So those are, are two pretty different um, numbers, and it's important that if they're comparing clinics that they know which number that they're getting. Ideally, I think it's uh, you want to be able to compare the clinical pregnancy rates because particularly in egg donation, that's going to give us a pretty good indication of what the likely live birth rate would be. That's a, that is a great point, that, that you need to be specific when you're asking for a pregnancy rate how are they uh how are they determining pregnancy that's a great and many idea. and many clinics will report both numbers if if asked for them um but some of them only report positive pregnancy numbers cuz you know they sound better 
Right. Sure. And they're yeah. very they're very aware of the American consumer, which is or the the client, and what they're looking for. In the beginning, they were just success rates. We don't know. I mean, they were kind of dumbfounded, but now they put those numbers out there in the forefront because they know that's what people are looking at. Yeah, and, and, and particularly in the Czech Republic, you'll find that most of the clinics are actually publishing their rates on their websites. Um, so the Czech Republic is probably one of the top destinations, in my um, opinion, for Caucasian donors or for Caucasians uh, from the U.S. who are looking for Caucasian donors. And um, you know that the they're very aware that they're, you know, in many cases, 80 to 90% of the patients are coming either from the UK, the US, from other countries. So they're very aware of their reputations and making sure that they're trying to be as transparent as possible, particularly in the Czech Republic. So how much information is available? As Catherine, you had pointed out, I mean, in the U.S., we expect pictures, we expect SAT scores, we expect, um, you know, highest education achieved, uh, uh, family his family medical history. These are the type of information that, that people expect and get on um, uh, on their uh, potential egg donors. And as you point out, then they select uh, whom they want. So what is reasonable to expect if you are going abroad? And, and if it varies by country, if you could give us specifics of, okay, if this is country provides this type of information or whatever. Catherine? Well, I'd, besides the country, some clinics inside a country may vary on what they're willing to offer and how they interpret things like anonymous. Uh, sometimes anonymous to one clinic means no pictures, no information. Sometimes to another clinic can mean you get pictures, you get a profile, but you don't find out their name or where they live. Uh, in Spain, we've seen basically the clinic will give you um, height, hair color, eye color, uh, education level, um, and uh, profession, if they have one, but you'll never see a picture. But the clinics work really hard to try and find somebody that's also a visual match, and if you have, you know, height requirements, and if you have specific requirements, they want to do their best by you, but you won't really get any information. In South Africa, you can get full profiles that resemble those you see in the United States. Some of the clinics will only give you, and, and egg donor agencies will only give you profiles with a baby picture. Again, maintaining in their mind anonymity because you cannot identify what they look like as an adult. Um, Ukraine, sometimes pictures and profiles, sometimes none. And I know uh, Czech Republic, from my understanding, again, it's more like Spain where they're trying to give you a good match and give you some information so that you walk away feeling good. They won't necessarily identify issues in the family history and say to you, oh, there was you know, lung cancer of, of the grandfather, but they have their own requirements as to what is a good medical history. And they screen people out that have diseases that they don't think uh, are good to pass on. And, and Sue, you may know more about this also. I think that in the majority of the clinics that I um, have come into contact with in Europe are using the same ASRM guidelines that we use here for doing their donor screening. So they're looking for heritable diseases, and that would uh, potentially get a donor um, screened out. But you're right. We're, you're not going to get the family history information that, uh, that you would get on a donor here in the U.S. Gotcha. All right, moving on to surrogacy, because I do want to leave time to talk about uh, considerations for families from abroad coming to the U.S. Um, 
so we won't spend as much time on surrogacy, but as we talked about it, uh, that cost is the uh, primary reason for people going abroad. Um, Sue, what should what are some of the again focusing on the very practical things when somebody is considering going abroad and using a surrogate? What should they be thinking about for how to find a country uh, and a program that uh, that would fit best? I think the most important thing for them to do is to find a consultant that specializes in surrogacy. There are so many intricate details to making the decision about where you would go for surrogacy that it's not something that I feel like you really can do on your own without both, you know, without legal professionals um, here in the U.S. and people that specialize and know what's possible in what countries. I actually, um, it's so specialized that I actually feel like I would do somebody a disservice trying to go into that area. And so I only work with people who are taking their U.S. surrogates over to have the egg donation treatment done, but they're using a U.S. surrogate. Um, And then I typically refer off to Catherine um, (laughs) for people that are looking to actually do surrogacy abroad because I think it's so specialized that you need somebody who's got significant expertise. Okay, then Catherine, other than uh, to make certain that you hire a uh, surrogacy concierge service here in the U.S. that is up to date, what are some things that people should be thinking about when they're thinking about going abroad? Well, as as Sue said, the laws do change. I would not rely on a clinic to know the laws. So sometimes people call the clinic and ask, you do need a specialist, whether it's immigration consultant, a uh, fertility specialist uh, or consultant. The other thing is it's not going to be the same as it is here in the United States. A lot of people in the United States want to form a bond with their surrogate, which is wonderful. The women are doing an incredible thing. They have communication. They go to doctor's appointments. If you're dealing with a surrogate in another country, Ukraine, uh, India, to give two examples, you're not going to have that same communication. They don't speak English as a rule. If there is communication, it's through an interpreter. Um, In India, a lot of people prefer programs where the surrogate lives in surrogate housing, where she's right near the hospital, right near the clinic. They're making sure she's doing all the medication. She has proper nutrition. In Ukraine, the surrogate often lives at home, but in the last two months of the pregnancy is brought to a city, uh, usually Kiev, where she's going to give birth, and the hospitals are very good. But it's not the same communication that you're going to have. Again, the other thing, success rates aren't as high. There's there's all kinds of considerations that are not going to be the same in the United States, but you're going to save a significant amount of money. And in general, the chi- I mean, the children are healthy. The surrogates want to do the same thing that a surrogate here in the United States does, is give you a healthy baby, feel emotional gratification, and also benefit her own life and her family with additional money. Um, and there, so there, it's, it is the same, and the motivate we find the motivation of most of the surrogates to be the same thing that it is here in the United States. But it's not going to feel the same. It's not going to be the same. And then you're going to have to travel to pick up your child. And it is going to, um, in most countries, you can anticipate being there three weeks to eight weeks after the birth, going through all the logistical paperwork that the, their government and the U.S. Embassy requires. So there's a substantial time commitment that you don't have here in the United States. Okay, now I want to shift to start talking about 
when foreign citizens, citizens of other countries, come to the United States. So we started with, when we were talking about U.S. citizens going abroad, we talked about what was the most common uh, procedures, what, what treatments were they going abroad for, uh, and why. So I'd like to do the same with uh, 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 citizens of other countries coming to the U.S. Catherine, what are the more common reasons why they're coming to the U.S.? For what, for what procedures and, and why? Well, it's interesting. One of the things people don't leave the United States for is for just straight IVF because the success rates are so high here and the the technology is there and the prices are not that the savings are not that substantial. When foreign citizens come, or uh, you know international clients come here, it's not to save money, but it's often for the laws. We have much more open laws about gender selection, PGD, you know, checking for chromosomal abnormalities, how many embryos, age limits, um, marital status or, or singlehood or being in a same-sex couple, uh, surrogacy laws are more open, egg donation, you're getting profiles and much more information than you would abroad. The success rates are the highest in the world. Um, there are so many reasons to come here, but as I said, the one reason you don't come here is to save money. Okay, so you're not doing it for the money. You're doing no. it for the availability of what it is specifically you are you are looking for. Yeah, the laws, right. the, the practices, the success rates, the technology. Um, it's just there's every reason out there to come here. <laughs> the uh, uh, and now again, so if you are someone living in another country and you're wanting to come to the United States, again, what are some of the practical things you need to think about to determine whether or not this is the best move to come here from a uh, from what as well as how do you find a clinic how do you find uh, uh what it is that would be the best fit for you uh let me so let me start with you and then I Catherine I want you to pick up on that piggyback on it to it Sure. Well, I think that probably, um, as Catherine mentioned, the reason people are coming here most often that I see is access to egg donors and them being able to select the donor based on um, all sorts of criteria, including seeing photos and potentially even having contact with the donors either now or in the future. That's something that's pretty difficult to get in other countries and even places like the UK where they do have open ID, ID laws, it's very difficult to find donors in some cases. So people are coming here um, because we have a really broad selection of donors, various ethnicities, et cetera, and, um, and they get a lot of information and they get to do the selection. And I think just like somebody from the U.S., um, you know, trying to decide where they're going to have their egg donation uh, treatment here, um, they're going to look at the clinic success rates, what kind of technologies are available, whether it's convenient to travel there, and probably most importantly, whether the clinic is accustomed to dealing with foreign patients because it's a whole different way of dealing um, and, and preparing and, you know, doing the monitoring abroad and some of that kind of stuff can be a little bit difficult if a, if a clinic is not accustomed to dealing with foreign patients. But there's lots of really good clinics that have good success uh, records in, in doing that. Okay, I, think is, I was going to say, I think it is so overwhelming for somebody coming from abroad because there are so many options here. And... As Sue said, I mean, again, people come for IVF, egg donation, and for surrogacy. Uh, the laws are great, and, and there's so much more involvement, um, and the success rates are high, but how do they pick? And, again, as you said, there's the SART, there's statistics, 
But having clinics that know what it's like to deal with international clients whose needs are greater, they feel lost. Many of them have never traveled ever in their lives also, and they're coming here and it's overwhelming to them. They need lawyers that are familiar. They need to have an immigration attorney at home if they're dealing with surrogacy. And they need, I really recommend, again, finding a a consultant, concierge service, or an agency, an egg donor agency or a surrogacy agency and a clinic that are all familiar in assisting them with travel, with, I mean, even if it's some tourist ideas, just what they can do when they're here and what can be expected when they come here, somebody that will really inform them and let them know what's going to happen before it happens so they can be well prepared. When you've, you've both mentioned the importance of working with a clinic that uh, has uh, is uh, accustomed to working with foreign patients, what specific questions should a someone uh, living abroad who wants to come here, what questions should they be asking a clinic to figure out if the clinic, because oftentimes what happens is they don't know what they're going to need. It's hard to anticipate what... Uh, uh, it's hard to anticipate feeling that overwhelmed. It's hard to anticipate what it is that you need help with um, until you're here and in the midst of it, and then it's too late if you haven't asked the right question. So what questions should they be asking? Sue, I'll start with you again, and then Catherine, you chime in. I think probably the biggest uh, thing that people are looking at first is the success rates. And very often if they're coming here, they may be looking for some specialized technologies. For example, um, uh, PGS using you know some sort of uh, CCS that gives them um, the information of all the chromosomal testing. Um, or they may be you know looking to do gender selection. And so I think that it's a, I think that very often those types of technologies are driving them to come to the US for treatment. And so, you know, they're looking at the success rates and availability. But I would I would actually back up and say that if they're coming for egg donation, they probably want to select a first and second choice of egg donors first and take that into consideration before selecting the clinic. Because there's um if they have very specific requirements about um for the egg donor then it can get a lot more expensive if they have to, um, if that egg donor needs to travel to um, another area for treatment. Whereas sometimes, you know, um, there may be options for them to cycle somewhere near where the egg donor is. And again, that's if they have some very specific um, egg donor requirements that might be difficult to meet. So I sort of have them start with that sometimes so that we make sure that we understand what their donor requirements are and look at those options and then um, uh, consider which clinic might be the best fit. Um, and I, I have a checklist of about 40 things that I go over with them um, when they're trying to decide what sort of what culture and feel of a clinic that they're looking for in addition to the technologies and, and travel times and all those kinds of things. Okay. Uh, Catherine, anything you can add to that? Well, I, I do think beyond finding the clinic that offers the services and has high success rates, as Sue said, there's a personality fit and there's a different style. It is very nice and I think important to make contact with the doctor before you come here. Almost every doctor that's used to working with international clientele will Skype with you. Uh, Also, it's a good indicator if they have somebody that is dedicated to international clients, and many clinics do. Again, assisting with travel, getting hotels nearby, um, as far as egg donor, I don't necessarily um, 
offer the same advice to my clients. I do think that you should pick the clinic, and it's very likely the more specific you are about what you're looking for in an egg donor, the less likely, I mean, you may be looking all over the country. We have a high number of um, Chinese clients coming in for egg donation and surrogacy in the last two years, and they want Chinese donors, and they're not as uh, and pure Chinese, and that's much harder to find. So they may, may be looking all over the country, and they may have a first choice of a donor that's available to cycle in two months and another one, and that one donor might be in New York and another Chicago. So if that's the case, you may want to pick the clinic and just pick the best one for you, the doctor that you like, that has high success rates, and and anticipate there are going to be travel costs for the for that donor. So when you're you're saying that, and I think that often we do see now uh, one of the issues is uh, Chinese uh, and and uh, Chinese people from China come, wanting to come over and and do want a pure uh, Chinese donor, uh, and and I've also seen it with Korean uh, that want uh, specific donors. And you're going to be looking. Is there any place in the U.S. that you're more likely to find a pure Chinese or a pure Korean donor or pure Japanese, either one? Any of those. Well, I, I do think that you know on the on the west coast it's a higher likelihood, but they're they're in high demand, and there's often waiting lists for them. And if you're put on a waiting list, you cannot not always anticipate that the donor is going to want to continue to cycle. She may be booked mm-hmm. up if if the donor agency practices that they will book uh, cycles in advance. Some won't do that. Um, you might be two cycles out, and the donor says, "Oh, I don't want to do this anymore." A lot of our um, Chinese and Korean and Japanese clients do end up not with pure donors. They start out wanting that, and then they see what their options are, and they may have to adjust their expectations. And this is true of anybody looking at an egg donor. You have a list of expectations and things that you're looking for, and you may find have a list of 10 and find a variety of women that have eight or nine of them and then they don't have everything but you make a decision and i always say you don't look you don't look at your spouse when you're getting married in the same depth and with with the same critical eye that you do with the egg donor you you know your but your spouse may have a lot of things that you might you aren't on your list or might not have those things and so that's the to, subject for a whole other yeah, show. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could save us all a lot of problems, couldn't it? Uh, yes. Uh, my husband, I hope, is not listening to this show. The, uh, the, yes, so you're right. So you may have to, although I have certainly found that that, that seems to be one of the, particularly with uh, Korean and Japanese, uh, that there's not a lot of flexibility on that one, but apparently you're saying that you've seen more flexibility, so. And I'm certainly not we an absolutely have. Yeah, okay. Excellent. But we try they try and they work really hard and sometimes they do find people that they like and you know, it's it's a very individual choice and 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 as I said, I think people are are becoming a little more flexible. And uh Sue, you talked about the culture and the feel of a clinic. Just give us a couple of, of ideas of what you mean by that that people uh from abroad who might be listening to this show could get a feel for the culture of a clinic that would be particularly uh, uh, useful for somebody coming from abroad, specific things they could ask for um, for about a clinic? Well, you know, I think that um, that culture is sort of, you know, the, the culture and the feel is sort of a little bit difficult to nail down, 
But um, as Catherine mentioned, being able to Skype with a doctor and do a consult with a doctor and make sure that you feel like he has the kind of maybe bedside manner, shall we say, that you're hoping to have. So there's some doctors that are very um, scientific that um, may not have the, the big warm fuzzies, but um, are really terrific doctors. And then there's people that really would want to have somebody that has, you know, an amazing bedside manner and, and is really warm and I think it's that's sort of an, a subjective thing. It's more about what the patient um, wants. I think you definitely want to look at, if you're going to come over for egg donation, you're going to look at clinics that, you know, are accustomed to working with egg donors. They're doing a good number of egg donation cycles every year um, and those kinds of things. Um, and, and perhaps you may want a clinic that... Um, is a little bit on the smaller side if you want a more individualized, personalized attention versus some of the lar really large clinics, um, you start feeling a little bit more like a number. So th all those things can sort of come into what I consider the culture, so to speak, or the feel that you get um, from one clinic versus another. And for, fam for, uh, for women who are wanting to start the cycle where they live and just come over here for the, the latter part, uh, how does the monitoring from abroad, how does that work, uh, and, and what questions should someone ask of a clinic before they choose a clinic here in the U.S. to see if they, if they don't want to come over for the entire cycle here in the U.S.? Catherine, what should they be looking for as far as expertise in monitoring from abroad? Yeah, I think you out and out have to ask the doctor or the clinic how long they anticipate you to be in the United States for your cycle. And they might say, oh, we'd like you to come for two weeks or, or three weeks, and then you, out, then you say specifically, can I be monitored in my home city? They may, if the laws are not good, sometimes it is hard to find someone, but there are often the clinic may have a doctor they've worked with in the past and can recommend to you. Sometimes you've already tried treatments at home and you need to approach your doctor and ask for monitoring. But the doctors here in the United States are very familiar with monitoring abroad. They send the orders to the, to the clinic or the, the lab in your home city. The lab <clears throat> does the work, and then they send the results back to the doctor, and the doctor reviews them and then decides from there what your medication. Some clinics might allow you to come in as close to one or two days before your cycle. Other like you to come a week before. So specifically ask what your doctor's recommendation is and what their leeway is. If you can't get away, can they work with you and your time schedule? One of the things that I am uh, I, I see surprising, well, not actually not surprising, but we're seeing a lot of interest now in egg banks, um, frozen egg banks. And it seems to me from a somebody from abroad, particularly those who are interested in a specific ethnicity or specific characteristics of a donor, um, are you also seeing an increased interest in uh, egg banks? And does that influence uh, where people are choosing to come for treatment? Sue? Yes, I think that um, I'm not seeing so much of that related to specific ethnicities because there's not a ton of diversity in the frozen egg banks um, that I see, you know, these days right now. However, it is pretty, um, it is appealing for people who are looking for an open ID donor, particularly um, there's there's one particular um, egg bank that um, is located up in Washington, and because their laws 
changed recently related to donors being open ID. Um, there's been, you know, I've actually had several people sort of inquiring about that uh, because of the access to future information. A lot of the other um, banks um, are still anonymous, and so if somebody's specifically coming to the U.S. because they're trying to get a, you know, they're trying to get more information and they don't want an anonymous donor, then the egg banks, you know, are probably less appealing to them. Mm-hmm. Catherine, what are you saying on the egg bank issue? I think the egg banks are still in their infancy as far as, you know, volume and getting the word out and having a really diverse uh, offerings as far as, you know, ethnicity. In general, the word on the street in, in other countries is that fresh still has a higher success rate. And it's true, but it's not that big of a difference anymore. The eggs, uh, frozen eggs are having a very good success rate. But you're only purchasing a small amount, and so people don't feel as comfortable with this technology yet. I think there has to be more um, statistics, more talk about it, bigger egg banks, and then in other countries they'll start feeling more comfortable when they come here. It's One of the big appeals of the egg banks is that um, there's no wait list and the eggs are already there, so your your risk is somewhat mitigated that a donor – you know, that you may start with a donor and she may not respond well or something, you sort of take all of those risks away with the egg banks. But um, but unfortunately, because it's a limited number of eggs, um, if you're hoping to have a cycle with maybe um, quite a few frozens left over for potential full genetic siblings, that's going to be a little bit tougher with an egg bank usually as well. And one other consideration that people sometimes um, come up with related to the uh, egg banks is that, you know, because these eggs are generally split between several families, there may be more potential genetic half-siblings out there. For some people, that um, is a consideration that might make them choose an egg bank or not choose an egg bank. And I've had people go both ways on that. Interesting, where they would actually choose because they would – I was really glad you brought up the point uh, about they uh, may not be able to get a full genetic sibling because that is something that is a, a very practical consideration that, that – might be a problem unless you choose to buy ahead, uh, and you can and you can do that as as people do with sperm banks. Uh, but there is, of course, a you know a, a larger cost issue associated with it. Uh, but people are uh, might choose to have potential half siblings. That would be a plus for them. Is that what you're saying, Sue? Yes, correct. Interesting. Okay, I had not I had not thought of that as as a potential a, a plus versus a. Uh, a I, I've had some um, some singles who are looking to um, that needed to use egg donation, and so for them, the fact that they might be able to that there might be um, half genetic siblings out there, particularly if they may only have you know they they may have an only child, um, was appealing to them. And I've, it's happened more than twelve once, which is you know which is sort of interesting because I didn't really expect that either. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I learn new things every day. <laughs> Um, one of the things I realized that we did not talk about, and I want to make sure we touch on it because I think this is important, uh, for U.S. citizens going abroad, so I'm kind of circling back now. One of the things we didn't talk about is laboratory quality, embryology lab quality abroad. We've talked about, and of course we've, we we touched on it when we talked about success rate because that is certainly tied into the, the, the lab quality. But generally, uh, are there specific well, first of all, how do people determine, how do U.S. citizens determine um, 
what the quality of the lab abroad would be. What questions do you ask other than pregnancy rates, um, uh, clinical pregnancy rates? Uh, what other questions can you ask to find out who is rating these labs, what type of protections they have as far as identification of, of specimens and eggs and sperm and embryo and, and things such as that? Catherine? <laughs> There are some companies out there that are trying to standardize lab rating systems throughout um, the world. And again, they're still they're starting out. They're trying to get people to embrace it. I think it is the future and where it's going to go, but it's not that widespread yet. You can mm-hmm. ask. I think some of the questions you can ask as somebody that's a layman and not knowing all the technical information again are things you know success rates what equipment do you have how new is it what procedures are you doing how many days do you let your embryos grow you need a better quality lab in order to um, get them to reach day five if the quality is not as good so you want to find out are they getting to day five um Let's see what else can you ask them i mean it's again it's it's an area that most people don't know that much about, but I think you go on success rates, and that is a good often a good indicator okay, Sue, any thoughts on that and you're right success um, rate I, would be a good indicator yeah i I mean I think the success rate and and perhaps also looking at what their success rates are with frozen embryos um if they if they are if they are doing um frozen eggs fertility preservation that probably is going to give you an indication that they're perhaps um you know taking advantage of the latest technologies um i i did want to circle back to one thing that um that we didn't really touch on that you may want to talk about um which is what what the number of eggs you can sort of expect in other countries versus what we have here in, in the US do you want to talk do you want me to talk about that a little bit Yes, please. Okay. Um, Because it's not really a lab issue, but we talked a little bit about full genetic siblings. And this is definitely a question that comes up for people, particularly that are going abroad for treatment. Here in the U.S., um, the clinics tend to stim the donors so that they get a lot more um, oocytes than or eggs than we um, than than is typical in Europe. So in Europe, the philosophy is typically to stimulate them pretty conservatively. Most clinics that I see are looking for somewhere between you know eight and fifteen eggs from a donor, which means that the likelihood of having a lot of leftover embryos uh, remaining after a fresh transfer. Um, is is not near you know is not as high, and so that does play into people's um, choices about if they're looking if they're hoping to have a full genetic sibling. Um, but I think the expectation should be that most clinics are um, expecting to get somewhere between two and four quality embryos for transfer when you're going abroad, whereas here in the states we're sort of have an expectation of larger numbers than that. Yeah, the clinics that I've spoken to abroad, their goal, as she said, it's a fresh and a frozen. Like in their mind, that's what they're aiming for, um, and they don't, and they only transfer two in many countries. And we didn't touch on that. That um, uh, that that's one of the the questions to ask. Although usually, our push, uh, at least here at Creating a Family, is to encourage people to think very seriously about the numbers and, and it was to not encourage people to transfer too many and usually going abroad 
that is not an issue because they have laws that restrict the number that are going to be transferred. So it's it's uh, it's less of an issue from uh, from uh, the standpoint of of of, uh, of us trying to make sure people don't push to be transferring too many. Um, but that's but you know what the number of eggs that's a valid as I am thinking that is the going back to what you were talking about comparing apples to apples wherein if your expectation in the U.S. is that you may get more and would if you want a larger family you would have full genetic siblings for the cost of one stimulation although there is some evidence which would indicate that uh, you may have higher quality embryos resulting from uh, less um, uh, aggressive stimulation but that's I don't think the answer is is refined on that. So that's a very and, good and, point to think on. Yeah, one of the things that that I discuss with my clients who definitely know that they are hoping to have, um, you know, future um, full genetic siblings as well, is most of the clinics, um, even abroad, will allow you to leave frozen sperm. And so, assuming that you're successful with your first cycle, if you didn't have any frozen embryos left over you could potentially request that the donor be cycled again um, using frozen sperm and the embryos frozen so that you would have basically full genetic siblings, uh, you know, embryos frozen. That's a good point about, yeah, going ahead and leaving frozen sperm when you were there, which would save money in the long run about another trip going back. Okay. And and yeah. even the cost of two, you know, two cycles, if you, if you needed to do that, the cost of two cycles abroad is typically still significantly less than a single cycle here in the States. You are listening to Creating a Family, and I want to take a moment to thank our, one more of our gold sponsors and remind you that it is through their generous support that we are able to bring you this show and all the resources provided by Creating a Family. Fairfax Cryobank has been a uh, gold sponsor uh, of ours for some time. They are a leader leader in sperm donation with over 20 year, for over 20 years and they are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Well, as is always the case, we have reached the end of the time before we've reached the end of what I want to talk to you about. But let me thank you, Catherine uh, Kakoff-Manos and Sue Taylor, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. Uh, and remind everybody that I will be uh, blogging on the topic of this show tomorrow, and you can access it and participate in the discussion at creatingafamily.org slash blog. Uh, I am certain now that people are going to want to contact both Sue and Catherine to get more information. Uh, to get in touch with Sue, you can go to her website, ivftraveler.com, to get more information on Catherine or on either Global IVF or on her uh, uh, surrogacy solutions. You can go to globalivf.com or you can go to agencyforsolutionsplural.com, and that is agency with the numeral four solutions.com to get more information um, about uh, her services as well. Thank you for joining us today and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy.
Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.